This is episode 54 of the CB Northwest and Camp Tadmore Events Podcast. We're continuing with Men's Roundup 2009, Pure Desire. This is session three, Saturday night with Dr. Ted Roberts. Well, I spoke at a lot of men's conferences and uh, I've been blown away by you guys. The way in which you have stopped me and asked questions, vulnerable questions, the way in which you've reached out to me, it's just incredible. And this afternoon we had approximately 200 leaders in a sweatshop right behind here. <laughs> and they said, we want to take on the battle. And that, I can't tell you what that meant to me. Because part of my commission when I came, I said, Lord, what do you want me to do? I, I just don't speak anymore. I, I, I feel I'm assignment situations from the Lord. The Lord said, help them to declare war. Help them to declare a war. Help them to declare a war. Well, what are you talking about? What kind of war? Look at the video screens. I'm convinced that my kids and grandkids are going to grow up in hell. Statistics show that guys are falling left and right. When I was 14, I crossed the line from legal to illegal activity. If I could sneak behind someone's back, if I can do it at my parents' house, or if I can lie to someone's face and make them believe it, that was the high for me. Just this big old cloud of shame. Those statistics are undeniable, and they're something the church has to face. It hurt me deeply. And I was the one that said, enough is enough. You're going to end up in jail, worst case scenario. Absolutely eating the church in America alive and is destroying our society. Those statistics that you just saw are not for alcoholism. They're not for an eating disorder. They are about sexual addiction, which is absolutely devastating the church in America and destroying our culture. The nature of the internet has created an epidemic around sexual behavior online, viewing pornography, having online affairs, uh, paying for sex, prostitution. It's, a, it's kind of an underground secret sin that everybody really tries to keep hidden. It, it'll come up on you in a moment where you don't expect it, and all of a sudden, bam, just something on the side of the screen catches your attention, and that leads to another thing, that leads to another thing, and it's just a chain of events. Sexual addiction, uh, any addiction, is, is a symptom of something deeper that, that's going on. When I was four, I was molested. I molested my niece when I was 14 happened a total of six times. Um, about 30 days apart between each each incident happened for six months, so a total, a total of six times. Uh, and again, after each time, I said, I just can't do it. I know the law. I know what they do to people like me. I, I knew everything. I was desperate for answers to um, a problem that my husband had with um, pornography and uh, sexual addiction. Not only had our marriage 
uh, been torn apart, but my son, unfortunately, struggles with sexual addiction as well. Now, the average stay on a porno site is not five minutes, it's two to three hours. And that tells you that the average guy sitting in a church pew on Sunday morning is getting more porn per month than the Word of God. Recently, I did a clinical study for a Ministry Toolbox, which is a very large uh, website for pastors. It turns out that 58% of them are sexual addicts, and 24% of the women turn out to be sexual addicts also, and they were in deep distress because of the level of shame that's connected with what they're caught up in. The negative consequences range from losing families, losing the ability to see children, losing careers. To see how uh, the enemy is allowed to put hooks into their life that uh, cause a lot of shame, a lot of pain. I really felt every time I tried to stop, it got worse. But see, sexual bondage is not about sex as much as it is about processing the wounds and the pains in your life. You were wounded in a relationship, and you need to be healed in a relationship as well. Well, the healing process for me started through a for men only group through Pure Desire. In the last four four years, I've been actually leading a group and getting a chance to show some hope that you know, hey, I I, I am a convicted felon. But you know what, God has a different label for me. I've been in Pure Desire for the past two years and I believe the most important thing uh, in those past two years is being having the awareness of uh, the struggles that I have and the things I deal with, knowing that I'm not alone in these struggles. We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to be fearful. There is hope. You're not alone. There are people that understand you and understand addictive disease in ways that can help you break out of isolation and get the support that you need. This is a true disorder, and through Pure Desire Ministries and for men only, there is hope for men, and through Betrayed Heart, there is hope for women. I'm a free man of sexual addiction. I've been for quite a while. Guys that come into these groups, you know, will ask, well, man, you've been here 12 years. Well, they don't have to be here 12 years. It's my choice to be there. No matter the devastation that you may have experienced in your family and you discovered your husband's on the internet porn site, or no matter the devastation you may have quietly suffered in your soul as you've been involved in sexual activity and felt such deep remorse and guilt and shame. And I know what I'm talking about because I came out of sexual bondage myself. And I've talked to literally thousands of couples who walked into my office with no hope, individuals who had given up on their life and were struggling even to hold on to their faith. And I've seen them walk into homeless and help. There's hope for you, there's answers. You no longer have to live in the darkness and the shame that you may be trapped in. God wants to bring the light of His grace and His hope in a powerful way in your life today. Uh, this is a battle the church has to win. There's going to be any sense of true revival in our culture. We're in a war, an absolute war, and I'm so delighted to have time with you men who've taken up this decision to literally take this battle on. When we're in Vietnam, every now and then, when we get some really tough situations, they never advertise it, but we'd have some Israeli fighter pilots come out and brief us. They're the best in the world. And so I've asked uh, kind of a spiritual Israeli pilot, Don Odegaard, to come and share his testimony with us. He's driven seven hours to be here, so why don't you welcome as he comes.
Thank you, Ted. Actually, I made a five-and-a-half-hour trip, a seven-hour trip. Been around that lake a few times tonight, but uh, it's good to be here. Uh, I've given my first testimony in 17 years this morning in Richland, Washington at my home church. That was a 40-minute testimony. I'm going to make a 10-minute testimony for you guys tonight. And just to start off with some, some background about me to give you a little context is um, growing, growing up, my younger years, from ages 2 to 12, um, my stepdad got back from Vietnam, and uh, he came back pretty messed up, was really a, a very violent guy. By the age of eight, I slept with a croquet mallet underneath my bed, and that's how I protected my mom and my sister, and how I protected myself. It was a very violent situation. By the time he was left at 12, or when I was 12, he left, uh, I became the man of the house. I was responsible to clean the mess up. I was responsible to uh, take care of the place. At, at that age, that was a, a tough thing for me to, to deal with. And there was, there was a lot of chaos in my home. By the age of 16, I realized the only way I was going to get out of this mess was to earn a college football scholarship. You know, I was gifted in that area, and I knew that was my only way out of this, this hellish background. By the age of 18, I had my college scholarship to Oregon State, no less, in hand. And I later transferred to UNLV, which I think is ironic today. But um, anyways, had that in hand. And, and by the age of 18... My motto when I left home was, the buck stops here. I had become a Christian when I was 12. Um, the buck stops here. All of the chaos, uh, all of the dysfunction, all of the abuse, poor fathering, poor husbandry, it stopped with me. That was my motto when I left. Had a decent college career, transferred to UNLV after my junior season, finished up there. Uh, spent uh, six years playing professional football as a cornerback, three of those with the New York Jets. Went on from that to have a short... Or, uh, actually left the sport because I had a career-ending injury, uh, cut me short at about age 30. Uh, went off and had a short uh, banking career with U.S. Bank. Then after that, um, I had the opportunity to take a fledgling uh, food manufacturing company in the Tri-Cities, uh, who three out of the five of those companies were bankrupt and had a chance to turn those around. And uh, it was a great experience, a great business experience. Um, in about a year and a half ago, we got the companies turned around, and um, we had like a thousand percent improvement in profit. We had doubled the company. Uh, life, by all stretch of the imagination, looking at my life from the outside, was a storybook situation on the outside. Well, at the time, we sold the company to ConAgra Foods, and at the time of the, the consummation of the sale, um, I had gotten a call from my banker saying the wire's in, the deal's done. Should have been the, the, just the absolute best time of my life, best time of my career. Well, at that time, my wife uh, was in Hawaii. We were supposed, both supposed to be in Hawaii. She was in Hawaii with her sister on my ticket, deciding whether she was going to stay married to me or not after 17 years of marriage. And I was home alone on my couch wondering what went wrong where it went wrong. And as I backtrack and look at 17 years of marriage, what I realized is that over time that uh, I've been trying so hard to fix the turmoil inside of me from the past, and I couldn't. And I was, I was saved. I read my Bible. I went to church. I did everything that I felt like I needed to do to cure the rage and the shame and everything inside of me from, from childhood and nothing helped. It got worse and worse. 
I couldn't be the father and husband that I wanted to be. Every time I failed, I made more promises. I geared up. I, I tried everything, and it just got worse and worse and worse to the point where my wife didn't want to be around me anymore. And at that point, I just realized that uh, everything that was most important to me was gone. And it was about that time that uh, she came back, and she gave me a chance to... Uh, to go get some counseling and, and see if I could turn things around. Um, it was about that time that I had confessed to her my addiction to uh, sexual sin, and um, she had given up hope on me. It was ironic that two months later, Ted Roberts showed up at Bethel, our church, one Sunday, and as I sat there and listened to him talk through his ministry, I thought, you know what, after all these years of failures, you know, maybe I'll give this one more shot with Ted. And just to make a, a really long story a little bit shorter, is me and my wife got a chance to go into counseling with Ted and Diane. And, um, you know, when you struggle with something for 18, 20 years, and you give up all hope, uh, you know, you kind of walk into something new thinking, okay, I'll give this one more shot and see if, if, if this will work. And it's ironic that with all the damage that a Vietnam vet had caused in my life, that, that God had brought a Vietnam vet into my life to bring healing. It's kind of like God's character, right? Um, but a year and a half ago, I went through a process of experiencing healing that I literally thought I had no chance of, of having. And my life has been completely changed. The tension in my soul that I've lived with my whole life was gone. And it was by God's grace that uh, Ted showed up when he did because I had worn out a few counselors in the years prior to that. And, uh, you know, I asked my wife uh, before I did the testimony this morning, uh, instead of me telling the guys what's changed in my life, what would you say that's changed in my life? And, t and I said, tell me what's really changed. Not the stuff you think's changed and what has really changed over the last year and a half and is consistent and you're convinced of it. And she said, well, number one, I trust you because you're safe. For the first time in my marriage, I really feel safe with you. She said, you're gentle, and you're nurturing to me and the girls, and it's authentic. And, uh, you know, it sounds kind of trite, but uh, that's what I had been striving for my whole life, and it was a long, ugly road to get there, but I got there, and by God's grace, I really owe my life to Ted and Pure Desire and, and what they uh, allowed us to go through. And so it's me saying thank you to you, Ted. Thanks, guys. After we finish the counseling process, uh, the hard part is when you get that close for 12 months, and you end it, it's hard to because you become such friends. Don looked at me and he said, I was crazy when I came in here, wasn't I? And I said, yeah, you were. You didn't know what normal is. Question I have for you tonight. Are you sexually normal? Interesting question. Are you sexually normal? You know, in our culture, that's kind of tough to ask and very difficult to answer. Well, how could we ever define that from Scripture? Well, interestingly enough, there is one book that is just absolutely fascinating in answering that question. It's in the Old Testament. It's the book of Hosea. I was asked at the undergraduate level to teach the minor prophets, and I thought I knew them. But once I started teaching them, it's standard. Once you start teaching something, you really learn it. 
and I fell absolutely in love with the prophet Hosea. We're going to use him as a backdrop to answer this question in your life. Are you sexually normal? See, he was the only prophet that we have from the northern kingdom. Remember Israel split into the ten kingdoms to the north and two to the south? He's the only prophetic word we have from the northern kingdom. And he is so radical. He uses such unchurched language, and he pushes, he goes where no other prophet in the Old Testament ever went. He took the sexualized language of the northern kingdom, which was worshiping Baal and sexualizing everything they did, he took that very language and used it to communicate the love relationship that God has for Israel. He is stunning in the way he communicates, absolutely shocking. In fact, if you have a Bible, you can turn to Hosea chapter 1, but I'm going to use a message translation. They're going to put it on the video screen for you because it catches the Hebrews' rhythm and texture better than any other translation I've ever found. Chapter 1, Hosea, verse 1 and 2. This is God's message to Hosea, son of Bariah. came during the royal reigns of Judah's kings, Uzziah, Jothan, Ahaz, Hezekiah. That's the kingdom to the south. This was also the time that Jeroboam, son of Joash, was king over Israel. That's to the north. That was his king. The first thing God said to Hosea was, find a whore and marry her. If you find that language offensive, it's not even close to the Hebrew. This guy pushes the limits. Find a whore and marry her. Make this whore the mother of your children. And here's why. The whole country has become a whorehouse unfaithful to me. Sign God. That's pretty severe language. That's shocking. That's in the Bible. But it doesn't stop there. In chapter 3, he continues the story. Next slide. Then God ordered me, start all over. He married this woman, and she abandoned him. So start all over and love your wife again. Your wife who's in bed with her latest boyfriend, your cheating wife. Love her the way I, God, love the Israelite people, even as they flirt and party with every God that takes their fancy. That is pretty extreme language. I don't know that you can read the book of Hosea and understand it from a left brain perspective. I don't think it's possible. Just looking at the historical background, the exegetical analysis, I don't think it's possible. You have to look at this book from a right brain perspective. You've got to see the picture. Let me tell you a story then. That's the best way I think I can communicate what I'm trying to say tonight. My name is Hosea. My profession, prophet of the Most High God. I served God faithfully from 750 to 725 B.C. in the northern kingdom of Israel. And as I returned from one of my frequent prophetic crusades and ascended the heights of Mount Tabor, suddenly I was encountered by a powerful, invisible presence that it was at the same time mystifying and terrifying. Though I didn't encounter it often, it was not unusual because I sensed I was in the presence of the eternal. And his voice came to me, as it were, riding on the crest of the wind. Hosea, I've come to talk to you about my people Israel and the covenant relationship we have, that they would be my people and I would be their God. But they have fractured our friendship. They have ruptured our relationship. Their faithfulness is like the morning dew that soon fades. And he spoke a long time to me on the top of Mount Tabor. I didn't say much. What do you say in the presence of a holy God? And whether in the body 
or out of the body, I know not which. He transported me and showed me time after time after time in history where Israel violated their covenant with me. And his voice was like the voice of a man in intense pain, like the voice of one who had been wounded by his lover. And I could tell by the tenor and tone of his voice that it was coming. I prepared myself. I knew exactly what he would say. I knew he would soon declare, and I've decided, Hosea, to wipe Israel off the face of the earth. But to my amazement, you know what he said? Hosea, I will save Israel. Not by bow or battle, not by horsemen or chariot. I will save Israel by the power of my love. And I said, well, it's good news, God. Glad to hear it. I'm sure the people of Israel will be delighted to hear it. But what does it have to do with me? Hosea, I'm glad you asked that question. I want you to get married. I'm going to make you a living parable, a dynamic allegory of my love. But before you are sent out, we need to talk about something, Hosea. I listened in on your last crusade. You are excellent of speech and adroit in skill of handling my word, but there's something that you do not understand. There was something that was missing. See, you do not understand the height, the depth, the breadth, the lift, the length of my love, which is absolutely scandalous. You do not believe how absolutely committed I am to all humanity. Your love is parochial, it's denominational, it's narrow. Therefore, to prepare you to be my spokesman, I'm going to take you through the crucible of domestic difficulties. Anybody ever been there? Because you don't know what normal is. I'm going to show you what normal is. And I said, well, that's okay, God. In fact, it's kind of good. Have an almighty, sovereign God choose your wife. In fact, I was just talking to myself yesterday. You know, self, you ought to get married. And I know just the gal. Oh, man, she's a looker. She comes from a prophet's home, family. She's a good Jewish girl. And she's been to all my prophetic crusades. In fact, she helped me pass out Ten Commandment tracts in the last crusade. <laughs> she's the gal for me. God says, I know the woman you speak thereof. And she will make someone a great wife. But that's not the girl I've selected for you, Hosea. The woman I've selected for you doesn't come from a prophet's home. She doesn't come from a Jewish family. She's a temple prostitute in the temple of Baal. That's the woman I want you to marry. Do you know what that did to my soul? Do you realize how that ripped across my heart? I mean, it didn't make any sense. After all the years that I've held myself pure for God, after all that I've done, it didn't make any sense. I, I just, it's just crazy. I mean, how can I be part of this travesty? I mean, how can I violate the prophetic community? I, no, no, never. I'd rather die with dignity than live with shame. And alas, no that I declared. I braced myself because I knew I was talking to a holy God. I knew death was coming. I knew it was coming. I closed my eyes and basically said, come on, death, bring it on. And I waited and waited. Finally, I opened one eye, looking for that pale rider of death. Didn't see him. Opened the other eye. Didn't sense God's presence. That's when I decided to take a quiet exit. And that's when God says, 
Her name is Gomer. Gomer? Who would ever marry a woman by the name of Gomer, God? Can't you find a better woman than a Gomer? Her name is Gomer, and I want you to marry her. Well, all right, but you better have a good explanation for this, because what am I going to tell mom and dad? What am I going to tell the prophetic community? I mean, what am I going to tell the nation of Israel? Right, pastor, God told you to marry a topless dancer. What kind of pastor are you? And besides, what does this have to do with your glory? You said everything should bring you glory. How can you get any glory out of a prostitute coming together with a prophet? How can there be any glory out of wickedness with righteousness? How do you get glory out of that? That's when I learned an important lesson. God said, you remember when we started this relationship? I said it was a partnership, but I was a senior partner. Sometimes I will make unilateral decisions, and I will not discuss it with you. Sometimes I won't give you a pre-flight briefing. We'll just take off. And the challenge for you, then, my son, is a challenge of faith. Not the faith do you understand it, not does it make sense, but the challenge is, will you trust my heart when you can't trace my hand? So make up your mind and realize I do not submit divine wisdom to the scrutiny of the limitedness of man. Once you make a decision of obedience, then we'll talk. You know, along the highway of obedience, only then did I begin to understand God's plan. As we walked towards the temple, he said, Son, let me tell you, don't stop, keep going. Let me tell you what I'm doing. I'm bringing together wretchedness and righteousness so that you would be a living pattern that I love the unlovely. That you would be a living pattern that I love all the gomers of all of human history, all the guy gomers and all the gal gomers, that they would know that I love the unlovely. You can break God's heart, but you can't break his love. I'm so glad that God loved her. She tried so hard. She tried so hard, but the people at the church, they would never let her live down her past. When they saw her coming, they would quietly say, sometimes not so quietly, here comes old, and you fill in the blank. My, how the girl tried, though. She tried so hard. Remember one day she came home after shopping, and her arms were full of bags of clothing and stuff. She said, Hosea, come, 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 come see. I, I got my hair done, and I, I got some new dresses with longer hems. And I'm not hanging out with the crowd down at the topless bar anymore because I'm a prophet's wife. And she was caught with this violent push and this powerful pull. And the people in the church would never let her forget her past. One day she came to me and she said, if this is your religion, I don't want anything to do with it. And eventually they shoved her out. And it was a while. I was stuck with three kids now. But I eventually decided to have it out with God. I went back up on top of Mount Tabor, and I was going to give him a piece of my mind. Of course, he was waiting for me. And I decided to get the word in first. I said, God, I told you. And he said, shush, son, just sit down. I have one question for you. Do you love her? Love the woman who humiliated me? Do you love her? Love the woman who embarrassed me before the whole prophetic community? I ask you, do you love her? Oh, God, is there anyone else up here but us? No, it's just the two of us. 
I love her. God help me, but I love her. Then you're ready, Hosea. You can go tell my people that they'll turn from their sins and turn to me. I will heal the land. And I was so excited, I went running, stumbling, falling, collapsing down that hill, got to the bottom of the hill, started to take off. God said, Hosea, one more thing. What, God? I want you to understand I'm sending you, not just so you can communicate that I love the unlovely, but so that you can forgive like I've been forgiving you. You see, you have a form of righteousness, but it's self-righteousness. And when you're around someone that's quite different from you, then you begin to see what's really down deep inside of you. You have a form of righteousness, but it's self-righteousness. Your idea of righteousness is an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And I leave everyone blind and toothless. See, I brought her into your life so you would know what normal is. That's why I brought her into your life. Now go love her, despite what she's done in your life. So you're starting to understand what normal is. Now let me step out of his sandals for a moment. Let me ask you the question. Are you sexually normal? This is an appropriate book because their culture is a lot like our culture. Well, let's find out if you are. Let's ask a couple questions. Question number one, first slide. I believe that sex should come naturally. Well, duh. Duh. Well, see, that is the view of our culture. It's the view that we're just like animals. It's just they're no different. But the, the, the female, well, just for example, the female of our species, the female women, you know, they're different from any other species of, of man, males. I mean, mammals, what I'm trying to get out. Because they have climaxes. Our, our species, the only, only ones that have climaxes. Now, there are some scientists that, a few of them, a few of them that say, you know, there's this particular species of a giant ape, and they may have climaxes. But they're not talking, and they can't prove it. Now, why would God create women that way? It shows you what primarily drives us sexually. It's not your biology or your hormones, it's your brain. It's your brain. That's what's going on. Question number two. Uh, I believe that the best sex should be spontaneous. Well, another duh. You know, some enchanted evening across the day. Wham! We go like that. That's what we do. Well, there's some part of that we like because we like to be wanted. But we really go for the spontaneous because then we're not responsible. I've counseled so many men who've been in adultery. And they go, oh, it just happened. I laugh anymore. I go, <laughs> it just happened. Let's see, now you hid money from your wife. You had to lie to her. You had to plan all this stuff. If you'd taken as much effort as you put in the adultery into your marriage, you would have a great marriage. Great sex doesn't happen accidentally. It's hard work. Next question. You may not admit it, but do you use your partner's sexual response to you as a measure of your sexual adequacy? <laughs> You're not laughing. I am, but that's the way it goes. I've counseled so many men, I just crack up. Now, obviously, you want to be responsive to your wife, but if how she responds to you sexually determines your ego level, you got all kinds of problems. Then it's performance. There's no possibility of intimacy. It's just going to be a mess every single time. You see how the culture's influenced our thinking? I mean, you know, was it good for you? I mean, that's how great a man I am. It's just, give me a break. Grow up. 
Get healed. Next question. Moving right along. This is getting too uncomfortable. <laughs> we tend to focus on intercourse. Well, is there anything else? I mean, that's a typical male response. Is there anything else? Uh-huh. Yeah, it's called intimacy. And a lot of couples have intercourse, so they won't have to be intimate. Because, see, intimacy, you are wide open and you're vulnerable to this other human being. They're seeing right into your soul. See how much the culture affects us? Well, let's wrap it up. Question number five. We're all scoring 100 on this one. Do you tend to confuse hormone prime with sexual prime? You're probably going, Bob, what's he talking about? Well, hormone prime. How many of you know what the prime age is for testosterone level in a normal average male? Anyone know what age? 19, yeah. Yeah, 19 years of age. You've got to squirt it out of both sides of your head. Okay, it's sky high. Don't worry. It's so high it takes a long time for it to come down. The average age for a woman to be her hormone prime is what? 35. You know what the difference between a boy and a man is? A boy has to have what he wants right now. A man will always delay gratification for a higher cause. If your sexual activity is about you and you get married, then what happens quite simply is you will be so focused on yourself, your wife's going to be frustrated over a long period of time. You have to understand this gift that God's given us of women. I mean, she can have climaxes three different ways and multiple climaxes. She's like a Stradivarius sexually. You're like a one-string banjo. <laughs> bing, 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 bing. That's the best you can get out of you. That's why we go for hormone prime. That's not your sexual prime. I don't believe you can really come to sexual prime until you're 30, 40, 56 years of age. Because you have to know yourself so you can be vulnerable to another human being. I think... You may not agree with this, but your cellulite level equals probably your sexual fulfillment level, ultimately. <laughs> Do you see how our culture has affected the way we think? We're just like Hosea's culture. Well, how did it end? Well, it has an interesting ending back in his sandals. I picture him several years later with his three kids out working in the field. They're in the tent. He's out pulling corn, and he hears this, Hosea, Hosea. And he looks down the corner row, and there's some guy down there by his tent. So he puts his sack on his shoulder and comes through, goes through the cornfield, comes up to the guy, and it's one of the prophetic community. He says, uh, I thought you'd just like to know, uh, your wife is, you know, your wife, the one that ran away? Yeah. She's so burned out, she can't even function as a prostitute anymore. She's being sold like a common slave. She's going to be in auction this afternoon. Just thought you'd want to know. Walks off. Hosea goes into the tent and he goes, God, what now? I can picture him dropping on his knees. And I hear God saying to him, I thought you said you loved her. Yeah, I do. Then love her all the way. So Hosea puts on his prophetic regalia and heads into town. And as he's proceeding into town, he notices there's these little kind of cobbles, little groups of people talking. Apparently, this guy told everyone in town. And here's as he goes by one group. There goes Hosea the prophet. He's going to have the last laugh. Another little group says, there's Hosea. He's going to stick his bony finger of judgment in his wife's face. And he's going, they don't know my heart. And as he turns the corner, he hears the auctioneer going, hey, guys, we got an old burned-out hooker here. She's being sold as a common slave. Anybody interested? Anybody? Five shekels, anybody? Ah, oh, five shekels. 
He walks up. He has to suffer the indignity of seeing his wife stark naked, stripped on an auction block, being bidded for by other men. Six, I'll give him six shekels. And he gets in seven. And they kind of pick up. He's a little bit. Eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. He's going, fifteen and a half shekels of barley sold to the highest bidder. I picture him walking up with his wife. They're so humiliated. Not a stitch of clothing on. Taking his prophetic robe off and wrapping it around her and covering her. And as he starts to help her walk off the auction block, she stumbles and falls. She looks up at him. She says, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I failed you so miserably. Could I just be your slave? I, I know I can't be your wife. Could I be your slave? I picture Hosea saying, I don't need a slave. I need a wife. My children do not need a slave. They need a mother. Now get up. I think it took him a while. I can't prove it, but I think it took him a while. He finally went, God, that's the way you love me, isn't it? When I do stuff that's so stupid. When I just turn from you in ways in the dark that no one knows about. That's the way you love me, God. You just won't give up on me. God, thank you. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that will grip the world. A while ago now, I looked at my counseling appointments. I had a 7 o'clock in the morning appointment, and I'll call his name Frank, cocaine addict. I went, oh, man, this is going to hurt. And so I drove up, and... Frank was there in his truck. He's a contractor, his truck. And he was standing out there, and he said, Hi, Pastor Roberts, how you doing? I'm doing great. What you told me last time, I just, <laughs> it really worked. I'm just doing great. I just came to bless you. And I thought, that's different. Well, what do you mean, bless me, Frank? He said, well, I'd like to wash your feet. I go, Frank, it's 7 o'clock in the morning. It's Oregon. It's raining. It's cold. He said, I know. He said, I, I heated the water. Can I just bless you, Dr. Roberts? I said, okay, Frank. I went in. He set the bucket down. And he uh, started taking my shoes off. And I am struggling. I'm just... And God asked a question. Remember, he never asked for information. He's going, why are you struggling? Because I'm not in control. When I'm preaching or counseling or ministering, I'm in control. My woundedness makes me want to control situations, wants to protect myself. He said, son, I have the hardest time loving you because you just won't let me do it. Would you let this man wash your feet? I remember he took my shoes and socks off, and I'm sitting there. I'm struggling with it, and I'm just going, God, help me to learn how to receive your love. Because I'm such a stinking performer at times. I'm constantly performing. I'm constantly just go, go, go. God, I just learned to walk in your love. And right about then, Frank looked up at me, and we, we come from a Pentecostal tradition, okay? I know it's weird, but you'll, you'll, you'll stick with me. And he goes, he says, I, I think I've got a word from God for you. And I went, oh, great, I like that. I like it when someone says, I think I've got a word from God for you. 
I hate it after service. I got a word from God for you, Pastor. Well, stand right over there. Take a number. They're lining up right over here. Frank, he's washing my feet, and he looked up at me, you know, and he says, I think this is what God said. When I saw you in your womb, in the womb, I saw you struggling for life, and your warrior's heart touched my heart. Frank has no idea I've got a scar down my left side where my mother strapped her stomach down so she wouldn't show that she was pregnant. Almost killed me. And God's going, gotcha. I just fell apart. I just fell apart. God said, I love you so deeply, son. And all the pain that you've got in your soul, if you'd allow me to bring you into relationships with other men, I could bring healing to the very core of your being. Because you're performing and running and pushing so hard. And you don't need to do that. Would you please let me love you? So here's the way I'm going to close this evening. I asked Mark if I could do this. I want to challenge you. I want to start a revolution. Yeah, I want to take on, I want to take on the sexual bondage that's in our culture. I want to take it on in the church. But the only way we take that on is not with the program. It's men finally realizing they need to be vulnerable and connected with other men. See, that moment healed me deeper than just about anything I've been experiencing in the last 10 years. Because God went down in that man's soul. Here's a cocaine addict speaking to a workaholic addict, and we're both getting healed. That's the way the church ought to function. That's what you and I desperately need. So my question for you, are you in any kind of group? It could be a Bible study, but you're just sharing on a surface. You're in any kind of group where someone knows your soul. Knows what's going down on in your guts. Knows what God's saying to you. Knows the hurts and brokenness of your heart. See, you can hear all kinds of stuff up here. But if you don't transition and begin to move into a group where there's at least one or two other guys that know your soul, and you get in a combat team, then we can't beat this situation that's going on in our world. And you can't experience the full anointing that God has for you. So my question for you, is are you willing to say tonight and stand to your feet in just a moment and say, God, I'm willing to be part of a group, a small group of men who I will be vulnerable to and I will be open to and I will receive your word to and I will be touched by you in that relationship. And if I'm not in that such a group, I'm going to find one if I have to make it in the church or out. I'm going to get some guys who I can team with in a combat team to walk into the blessing of God. Amen? If that's something that you need to do and you would like to do, I want you to stand to your feet tonight and I want to pray for you before we close. Now, this is not mom or apple pie. You're fine if you're seated because you're taking this stand before God. That means you're going to get uncomfortable. Some guys are going to be taking your shoes off. Some guys are going to be, by their statement to you, they're going to be exposing issues in your heart that you've been hiding for a long time. And God's grace and his mercy are going to be speaking to you in the core of your being. Father, you see us as we stand here. And we're not making a commitment by our own energy, by our own effort. But Lord, what we're saying, even start the process tonight and tomorrow. 
move us as you can in amazing and profound ways into combat teams of men who are tightly connected heart to heart and then speak to our soul. Begin to release things within our being like Don talked about. What set him free was a relationship that we built together. Lord, let there be the healing power of Jesus Christ break loose in our hearts and our souls in relationship from this moment forward. In Jesus' name, we pray and commit. Amen? Amen. Let's all stand together and an applause offering unto the Lord, guys.